0: Hello, you are tuned in to the Now Next podcast, navigating your meaningful now and meaningful next. My name is Very Claire Kunkel. I am one of the co-hosts as well as the podcast producer. My two fellow co-hosts, Sammy DiBiasso and Drew Tucker will be taking the lead on this episode, but here and Now Next, we make content about vocation, which we have defined as any meaningful life-giving work for the world. And we really want to emphasize that in figuring out your vocation, it is not a linear process. There are a lot of twists and turns and backtracking and taking five steps forward, maybe three back, and that's just how life is. So don't put too much pressure on yourself, folks. And to do that with us today, we have Dr. Valerie Bridgman, who is the dean and vice president for academic affairs at Methodist Theological School in Ohio. She's also an associate professor of homiletics and Hebrew Bible and has had many published works. She is also the founder of Women Preach, which is an organization committed to training preachers who often emerge from churches, academic institutions, and other spaces that are inhospitable to their vocation and their voice. Dr. Bridgman, this was an amazing conversation that we're so excited to bring to our listeners' ears.
1: And today we are going to be talking about what we are called to in connection with God's larger mission, that we are called for something that is something greater than ourselves. So this overarching mission that we are a part of as God's people, that there is this Legacy from Eden to eternity that's written about in the New Testament as the reconciliation of all things, not just the restoration of creation, but the rebirth and new life of abundance that God has in store for us. And so, as we think about vocation and the way that we focus on what we are called to, we are not called to do everything. We cannot do everything on our own, but we are called to do things that contribute. To that overarching mission that align with God's sense of purpose and meaning. That's why we call vocation any meaningful and life-giving work we do for the world, because it is serving God's creation. So part of this helps us notice that we're networked, that we are connected to one another, that Sammy and Mary Claire and Dr. Bridgman, that we all do different kinds of work and that we trust one another to lead in the ways that they lead well with their gifts and talents, that we trust and empower one another, but we also don't expect everyone to do all work and we also don't expect people to do work that they're not compensated for or that they are not willing to do that we don't force people into those situations so part of that means in our whole sense of being called to do something on this journey that we work together with a crew who bring different identities and abilities and opportunities than we can bring on our own so as we're sailing these stars as we are called to something greater than ourselves something cosmic and beautiful and transcendent we begin to see that we have something holy in our work and wholly with what we're called to do, which is why we're so grateful today to have Dr. Bridgman with us from the Methodist Theological School in Ohio and to share some about your work and the ways that you see your specific vocations as connected to that larger mission of God. So thank you for being with us today. I'm glad to be
2: here.
3: So. Dr. Bridgman, we were wondering, just right off the bat, how do you understand God's
2: mission? I am a Christian primarily, although I feel deeply connected to Judaism and was a member of a temple for many years. And part of that is because I'm a Hebrew Bible scholar and I just, I love the songs of the temple. I am deeply committed to the Jesus project of justice. I don't think Jesus and justice are two separate things. I think they are one in the same and that Jesus is the embodiment of that. So my work, I don't know that I even call it work. The call that I feel on my life is to align myself as much as I am able to the Jesus project of creating and being created by creating a world that is just for all who live in it and sharing in that project with all those who agree to that work.
3: Yeah, thank you so much for that. I think sometimes it gets ambiguous in like talking about God's mission, and yet it can also be so specific. I have learned, as I've been so grateful to take a class this year at MTSO, and our class in particular for our podcast listeners is called Social Justice and the Sacred Texts. So I'm curious, in, in your perspective, how does engagement with our sacred texts and the expansiveness of what sacred text means help us to connect with something greater than ourselves.
2: So I've been teaching over 20 years. I've been a Christian since I was a young child. I'm 62. I have no problem with saying that I am a woman of a certain age. I'm an elder now. And I am deeply aware of how very much people don't know the Bible. I mean, they know portions of the Bible. They know the Sunday school version of the Bible. They know the nice parts of the Bible, whatever they consider the nice parts of the Bible, and therefore don't actually engage the Bible. As a conversation partner, a way of wrestling with the times we live in, as a way of recognizing that the Bible is not a part of our times, It is not timeless. It is time bound, but we own it as our primary sacred conversation partner. Right. And so knowing that people don't actually read the Bible a lot of times, I will say to students, we're going to do something radical. We're going to actually like read it and then allow the struggle that that is the parts that distress people to help them to least come to what their questions are. Because I think that's the second thing, which is we have been committed to answers as opposed to what Maria Rilke called living the questions. Like we we are so afraid in general of questions. And uh we we want answers. We want to know, you know, and 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 learning to live with the tension of the how long of Habakkuk or any number of the questions that show up in the Psalms or any other part of the Bible. While we walk our missions out, our work out in this Jesus Project, I think is a part of the learning curve for all of us.
3: Yeah, I've, I've loved so much every time we get into class and then people are like, okay, but how do we do this practically? And you're like, well, that's, that maybe it's the wrong question to be asking, you know? But we, there's this urgency, this sense of like, okay, we have this information, what do we do with it? And so like sitting with it is hard. We're also wondering, you know, in all of your experiences of teaching and your Bible scholarship, do you sense a holy purpose in your call from then faculty to now administration?
2: Oh, sure. I I mean, first of all, I think of myself as a doctor of the church, and my role is to help train the church's leaders and public theologians, people who can speak to the wider world. And as an administrator, that means I am trying to take, I don't always pull this off, but I'm trying to take a 30,000 view of what are we actually doing? How is that functioning in our classes among our scholar-teachers how are we both reflecting on and acting on what we say we're reflecting on and acting on? And how is that shaping the church? And how is that helping those who we're sending out help shape their communities or at least be able to, I'll use this phrase again, ask the right questions in their community to help shape the conversations both among Christians in a Christian dialogue and enter religious dialogues. So as an administrator, it's it's hard not to think about the finances, right? And so trying to keep one's imagination fired beyond dollars and cents, to imagine a world that my students, that our staff, that our professors will inhabit in 40 years. And, and for that not all to be dystopic, you know, because if you look at all of the futuristic things that we see on TV, not all, but a lot of them, they're full full of zombies and there's no so-called normal world where normal human beings are doing normal things. I put that in air quotes for people who won't see that. But some of that is because we're also called to imagine beyond this category of normal.
1: I so appreciate that, in part because when I was in graduate school, Dr. Willie Jennings was one of my professors, and his emphasis on imagination and imagining beyond not just the world that we live in to dystopia, but into a better way into participating in that that kingdom of God. When he said that the first time, my eyes opened, because that was not something I had had heard before growing up in a white mainline Protestant context where most people are like, oh no, the world's pretty good. Right. <laughs> well, for who? Right. Like for maybe for you, I guess, but it could probably be better for everybody. I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how that relates to the development of Women Preach, this initiative that, that you began. Uh, so I'm curious what led you to develop that and how you knew that you were called to that new journey.
2: Just a small correction. is Woman Preach.
1: It's Woman Preach. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Woman and the Preacher. name came from, we were sitting around with a group of other people and the name came from something that happens in black churches where somebody says, "Preach, woman, preach." So
1: okay, all right, now I understand. Thank you.
2: <laughs> so that's where the name came. Uh, it was it was one of those God got you moments. One of my uh, godsons and I always talk about the God of the ambush. So I was not trying to develop woman preach I did something at the National Cathedral in Washington right before they quit doing all those courses we were one of the last courses that used what became a prototype of what we we're doing And they were convinced that people weren't going to come. So they said, I needed a real name because nobody knew who I was. (laughs) That wasn't true. But you know, this is a very interesting thing where certain people who think because they don't know you, no one else knows who you are. Code that however you need to code that. (laughs) And afterwards, Uh, several of the women, 35 women were there, said, oh, you need to do this, and you need to do this regularly. So what we had done was, and what we do regularly now, is put people in in cohorts where they were pressured to actually speak, to actually practice preaching, as opposed to listening to people talk about preaching theoretically honestly didn't imagine doing it i we got a small grant from the sister fund and in new york and i had planned to do it that one time and 11 years later we're still at it so uh, about 4 years in we started doing program that included men
1: i love that for a couple of reasons one try to imagine often what the what that early church movement felt like you know we're we're gonna do this for a while and see what happens right and the holy spirit has other things in store and things move and shape and change but the other reason back to your idea of who knows who you are and how that shapes who they think will know who you are right it we so are rarely willing to listen to other people what other people's perspectives might tell us about what we need to know about who might have perspectives and value and relationships that we just haven't encountered before I also just want to say I appreciate way back when you said you got no problem saying that you're an elder that you're a woman of a certain age as a still a young adult in my church's terms for the next like month I have a very odd and I think and maybe reshaped relationship with age After my sister was diagnosed with cancer, because it has come around to a place where I used to complain about getting old and gray hair and my knees, you know, hurting in ways that it didn't when I was seventeen. But now, as she is still battling four years later, you know, part of my perspective is how age is a privilege that is denied to too many. Folks, and so I, th- I think normalizing the the blessing and the reality of of aging and becoming an elder and sharing the wisdom you are, I just I so appreciate that and your willingness to lead in that way.
2: Thank you. My mother used to say, "Your options are." get old or not.
1: <laughs> I love that.
2: So there's that.
3: <laughs> well, Dr. Richmond, I in kind of echoing Drew's like what we've we've picked up so far in our conversation. I mean, I personally in, in my in our class, I just am constantly just writing down quotes. Um, from what people are saying. And so part of that is in this conversation so far, is just like Jesus and justice aren't different or separate things and proclaiming that in a world that the majority, particularly white majority that does not believe that has been obviously a challenge and also in particular in this day and age as we're walking through and for our podcast listeners, this recording is coming in the week of the wake of Dante Wright's murder, as well as we're in the midst of George Floyd's um,
2: trial. We're not in the midst of George Floyd's trial. We're in the midst of Chauvin's trial. That's yes. But what you said is instructive because people have put George Floyd on trial mm. yeah, as opposed to the man who killed him. Thank you. And I don't mind saying he killed him. Mm -hmm. Because we watched him put his knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. I don't care how many drugs the man had in his system. He might have died that night from a drug overdose, but he died from somebody cutting the air off of him for nine minutes and 29 seconds and Mm -hmm. looking directly into a camera while he was doing it. Mm -hmm. And the jury may disagree with me, but that won't make it not true. Right
1: juries have made a lot of suspect decisions over time exactly i also want to name just in the last two days uh adam toledo as well that that Mm -hmm. these are things that continue to happen and these are things that that have rocked columbus that have rocked chicago that have rocked minneapolis that have rocked la and new york but also communities that we don't hear about and so that's part of the struggle communities like i grew up in they don't see it and so don't think it's a problem because they aren't willing to see it not because it's not there
2: today i posted on facebook this morning i finally had the words to post about Lieutenant Caron, I I can't think of his last name right now, who got pulled over in North Carolina. And in the late 1990s, when I was working on my PhD, I was driving between Waco, Texas and Austin, where I lived. I was in school at Baylor University at the time. And it was at the time when somebody was pretending to be a police officer and pulling women over and raping them. And so this Cop turned on his lights behind me late night. It wasn't late, late night, late eight o'clock at night. So I did what they had told us to do on the news. I, I put my hazard lights on, slowed down, and called 911 and told them I was being followed by somebody. I presumed it was a cop, but that I was going to a lighted gas station before I pulled over, which was about a mile. So I drove that way for about a mile, pulled up, and there were several people at this gas station. And when the cop got out of the car, He had pulled his gun and was screaming expletives at me for not having stopped when he tried to pull me over. And I still had 911 on the phone. And uh, they said, Give him the phone. And I said, 911 would like to talk to you. And he said, You don't have effing 911 on the phone. And so I just, I had, while I was driving, I had pulled my license my registration and my insurance out and put it up on the dashboard because I didn't want to have to reach for it after I got stopped because I didn't want to get killed for reaching for my license, my insurance, and my registration. And while he was still screaming at me with the gun pulled on me, he got a call. And then when he came back to the car, he said, you should have pulled over And I said, people are getting raped on this stretch of the road. I thought about my safety, sir. And now remember, I'm in front of a gas station now, and it is lighted, and there are several people watching. So I said, what did I do? And he said, I was weaving like I was drunk. And I said, are you going to give me a sobriety test? Because of course I was not weaving and I was not drunk. (laughs) So he said, no, you just get home safely and quit weaving. And I sit in the parking lot for 30 minutes, making sure he went in the opposite direction of where I was going before I got back on the highway. That's just one of several conversations I personally have had with troopers or police officers or whatever. And every time somebody white says to me, but what were you doing to make them pull you over? Or what were you doing? I was deeply aware that I could have died from my fear from my life that day and that the police officer would not have been charged and would not have been convicted were he charged. It's it's violence porn that we see just because things are now on video doesn't mean they just started. I don't know a black person. I personally, I'm not saying I know all black people, but I don't personally know a black person who hasn't had what I just described that kind of encounter with a police officer. And I don't know any black men who haven't been roughed up by a police officer. Not one, not my sons, not my godsons, not my ex-husband, not my friends, not my brother, not one. And none of them were in jail. Just walking while Black, driving while Black, shopping while Black, any number of while Blacks. And so I really think, now back to this as a theological project, I really think until those who claim to be Christians really believe more in justice than in law and order. This will continue because Paul was wrong to say that we should obey the law no matter what. Augustine was right that an unjust law is no law at all. And when we won't hold accountable people who have a taser and a gun on their hip and pull a taser out They don't even feel the same in the hand. I know because I've held both. So I know they don't even feel the same way. And your job is to train police officers. If Christians don't think that that needs to be addressed, if Christians don't quit saying there's just a few bad apples, but rather devise some kind of imagination for a world where people can sit freely under their own vine and fig tree, And none be afraid. How can you continue to call yourself Christian?
1: I think that's the conviction for me is that we as a I'll just speak for the North American church, but particularly the white North American church largely abandoned the sense of that allegiance that that we are for. God's justice instead of a law and order approach. And that God's justice, as you said, is seen in Jesus, that there's not a difference in those things. And that justice is not a penalty. That justice is not that kind of shame, but instead that justice is liberation. My fear is always that so many people have united Jesus with law and order that they can't see that he was killed by law and order. Right. So what do we do when every, every Every holy week we read that story and we don't get the story's message.
2: Well, bec- it's it's because we have made that story about our salvation and therefore Jesus suffering a necessary evil, a necessary part of our salvation, which frankly in the US most white Christians see black suffering as necessary evil for their safety. Our our theology is in the way white people see law and order. It, it actually is because of the way we read the cross, as opposed to Jesus is killed, murdered by the state, and made a sign and symbol so that Rome could claim peace by putting down revolutionaries. If Jesus was not considered a revolutionary, they couldn't have had the choice between the revolutionary Barabbas and the revolutionary Jesus. And clearly, Judas Iscariot thought he was there to bring some upheaval to the oppression of Rome over many peoples, not just the Romans and not just the Judean countryside. Our inability to see wrong is a part of our greatest sin as the church or our unwillingness to see wrong. I don't know if it's our, and partly because if we see it We may have to say something. We may have to do something about it. I I remember having the students say to me they couldn't preach about things that were happening in the culture because then people would leave the church. And I said, as opposed to repenting and being converted, they would leave the church and the students said yes. And I said, so you would rather have unconverted people paying your salary than people who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay.
1: That is the terrible math that so many churches do. I have to admit uh, this morning I was, you know, doom scrolling Twitter because what else do we do when we wake up in the morning, but start our days terribly. And someone had posted something about, can you believe Pat Robertson said this? And I was like, come on, like, do we have to start this Friday of this weekend this way. And as a person that I don't think I've ever disagreed with more in my entire life, he was talking about how police had gotten in the way. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not sitting here to praise Pat Robertson saying he said something that hasn't been said before. It was like the lowest of low bars <laughs> that, that he finally managed to crawl over. But I had this moment of what does it mean that even this voice that has been, I mean, elevated to semi-deified status by so many people who are ignoring the kind of questions of have we truly been converted to the justice that Jesus has for us? That if he's saying like, yeah, things have to change, but so many other are unwilling you know back to your question you know committed to answers rather than living the questions right you know what it's and the thing that I love about that with the example of your student with me as a pastor with Sammy as an intern is that just because we're living questions doesn't mean there's not stuff to do right It's just not certainty right it's just not certainty in ourselves And that there is still a call. There is still holy purpose. But anyway, I tell
2: people all the time that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. We don't know the outcome of the choices we make. I pastored, by the way, for 27 years. So a lot of times people are like, well, these people in the ivory tower. No, I pastor. I preach regularly. I know what the church is facing. I would like for churches to be okay with subtraction math. I would. I mean, we tell the story of Gideon, but we don't mean it. We want a hundred thousand people. We don't want thirty. We don't want three hundred because we want to quote look successful. Because in our culture, success is in numbers and is in dollars and cents. Not as it is not in thriving. It's not in what is right. It's not in you know. One of the things I said last night in class was, I wonder if the church could ever find itself living as a colony within this community, as opposed to trying to always doing the, oh, we're going to change this community. I'm I'm like, but we haven't changed us. We literally are not working on our own sense of unjust ways. And I'm sorry, swapping the pulpit two times a year is not racial justice. It's not racial reconciliation. It's not, you know, I, I had a, Uh, white parishioners say to me one time, I just don't understand Black people. And I was like, because you don't have to. Black people have to understand white people because it's at the level of our safety. And she was offended by that. And I said, but When I tell you that the cops do X, Y, and Z, you say, are you sure? And it doesn't matter if a hundred people you know is telling you they've had this experience. You still have something in you that won't let you believe that. It won't let you believe it because it means you will have to change. What does it mean for us to have to change? Let me say this. Shaniqua Barnes is under fire right now for saying, God, teach me how to hate white people. That was the opening of a prayer she did that ended with, but you have not made me this way. So help me to know how to be reconciled to those who have wounded me most. But of course, you know, white evangelicals are going, see, they hate white people. I think it is the great miracle that Black people don't hate white people and don't hate this country, that we love where we live and that we love all of God's creatures and creation. You should count that as the miracle and wonder why, which, by the way, last thing I'll say about that is I think a lot of reasons that some people don't want justice is because they think equitable means that Black people and other people of color may treat White people the way they have been treated, which makes me think about (laughs) my friend Alan Bosak tells a story about when they were up against apartheid. And I was there when he did the speech in uh, San Antonio, and he was saying that he said at the University of Johannesburg that Black people in South Africa don't want much. We just want to change a few signs. We want to change the whites only signs to black signs, black only signs to white signs. And they almost killed him that night. And he said, the fact that you know that there's something wrong with that should tell you it needs to be changed. That alone tells you that something is wrong with the system and therefore that we have work to do as the church. And part of
3: that work, as as you've already mentioned, Dr. Bridgman, is distinguishing the difference between reparations, reconciliation, and restoration. And I'm curious if you could share more about that for our audience who
2: are exploring being called to something greater than themselves. I don't know what I would say at this point about reparations. I I think this country, let me just stick with the church. I'm going to sit with the church. I don't don't want to talk about this country today. I do think denominations have to look at the ways that they pawned run-down buildings on to communities of color once white flight started. And then did nothing to help those communities sustain those buildings or provided income that was deeply problematic, (laughs) for um, people of color in their denominations. So I'm just talking about denominations right now. doesn't matter where the denomination is on this. And I think the church owes itself to get honest with itself, to begin to look at what would be equitable, what would be right, what would be righteous. And again, not in some political democratic sense, little d democratic but literally in the gospel sense. Now, a lot of times people like to say, "Well, Jesus said the poor you're going to have with you always. I love it when people quote that. And I'm like, really? But did he say that? And in what context did he say that? He said that while Judas had his hand on the money bag complaining about a woman anointing his head with oil. You want to talk about that? Having your hands on the money bag, saying how the money could be spent, but not spending it that way. Let's have that conversation if you want to talk about having the poor with you always, in the context of the biblical text, back to do we actually read the Bible? So I, I think the church owes it to itself. I mean, we're drunk on power. We're drunk on possessions. We're drunk on it. So when Jesus says to a rich young ruler, sell everything you got, got and come follow me. You know, people say, well, he doesn't mean that for all of us. That was just for that young man. Okay. So then what are you supposed to do with all your wealth? I had a woman who was very wealthy say to me, are you saying that I can't be wealthy? I said, use your wealth for good. What does that look like? What does using your power for good look like? What does it mean to be in relationship with people as opposed to over them? What does it look like to really break bread with people do you know I have a friend who has a hospitality house to houseless people in in Memphis and he spends a lot of day the whole crew the The volunteers spend a lot of time listening to the wisdom from the streets. Are they helping them? Yes, but they're also being helped. So when we talk about whether or not we are part of the mission of God, for me, that means a part of what that means for me is are we listening to all of God's voice? in all the ways that God's voice shows up in the world. The voice of God is like the sound of many waters, po- the poet in Psalm says. What are the many waters that we are ignoring because we think we know what God sounds like?
1: And I feel like you just answered our next question, which was gonna be, How do we identify the thing beyond us to which we're called? Yeah,
2: so I I used to say, well, I still say, but I say to people, if the fight comes to you, it's your fight. Don't Mm -hmm. go looking for a fight. But if it comes to you, it's your fight. That thing that irks you more than and keeps you up at night, that thing that and if nothing irks you, then go in your prayer closet and go for a walk and see if something can irk you. I mean, wait until, you know, don't hop in because it's the next fad because you will stop the minute you get tired. We we suffer from compassion fatigue because we're planning on fixing the world as opposed to being faithful to the call.
1: Can you say that one more time? Because I think... I know I need to hear it again. And I'm thinking some other people might need to hear that one again.
2: I said we suffer from compassion fatigue because we are convinced that we're going to fix the world as opposed to being faithful to the call.
1: Amen. And that's where I think this distinction between understanding we have a particular call and that it contributes to God's mission, but we, I mean, I cannot do God's mission alone. You cannot do God's mission alone. None of us can accomplish the work of God in the creation and restoration of all things alone, but it's also not disconnected from that work and that we have our part to play in it and that we're in community doing that. So um, I know you have a limited amount of time with us. So I want to say thank you so much. Jamie has one last question for you. You, but I just want to say how grateful I am for you and your vulnerability today and your willingness to share with us at this time. And I know that that you have many tasks as a teacher and administrator and family member and all sorts of other kinds of things. And so that you share this time with us, I take as a holy and wonderful time and space. So I really appreciate you, Dr. Bridgman, and being with us today.
2: Thank you, Drew. It's been good to be
3: here. So our last question, Dr. Bridgman, is when we ask all of our um, guests, on the podcast as we're exploring vocation and so the question is what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid
2: <laughs> oh you mean people actually answer that <laughs> sometimes begrudgingly I don't know <laughs> yeah, I, well I, because I actually don't have an answer to that you know I know this sounds weird but um Growing up as I did in the house with a pastor and a teacher, growing up as I did in the country living next door to my grandmother, who was a root working woman in the deep south, and my grandfather, who was a deacon of the church that prayed two hours every night, knelt by his cast iron bed. I have always been deeply aware of God and therefore deeply aware that God calls us. So I think for me, I I didn't have the kind of struggle around, is God calling? My struggle was, am I going to answer that call in this now? And I I had a professor when I was in my undergrad who said to me that your problem, Valerie, will not be uh, what to do. It will be what not to do. You can't do everything you're gifted to do all at once. And I, begrudgingly, I had to agree with that. I agree with that still. And so now as I'm on this end of my life, I'm thinking, what do I pick back up that I put down to do this part? So that part uh, call that it may shift and it may change. I'm not going to be a professor for the rest of my days unless I die before I plan on it or being a dean or whatever but that doesn't mean that I'll cease to be called so do I pick back up being an artist I mean like purposefully is that the next thing Uh, so I don't know that that answers your question as much as it says that I think call is as much process as anything
1: Once again, I'm struck by how God shows up in conversations in ways we don't expect with Dean Bridgman today and the ways that we see God showing up in her life and her work in the ways she speaks truth with grace and power because that's what she's called to, but also what she's called for. Her specific living out of her vocation of her purpose is serving that greater mission of God that changes the ways in which we face every single day so from these different steps from columbus to across the country throughout the world i hope we pay attention and listen closely to what dean Bridgman has to say to us today to what our dear sibling in christ has to tell us about developing and discerning and deciding the difficult work that god calls us to confronting injustice speaking truth to power and also persevering amidst the struggle that that's worth it not just for ourselves but for that thing to which we are called for that reconciliation of all things that true embrace of all creation thanks for joining us today
0: Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasto. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our Seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.